From New England Public Radio in Springfield, Massachusetts, this is NEPR News Now, stories you really should not miss. Thanks for joining us. I'm Sam Hudzik. Coming up, Gary Cloutier was highly skeptical of Obamacare until he got the insurance and started using it. Now he's no fan of efforts from congressional Republicans and President Donald Trump. Yeah, I'm the, the blue-collar worker. I'm fed up with the government, you know, doing what they do and how they don't really care about us. But I'm not a moron either. Then... The government is forcing General Electric to dig up toxic PCBs the company dumped in the Housatonic River decades ago. But where to put what gets dug up? I think it's sort of disingenuous on the part of GE to pull it out of the river and put it a couple hundred yards away. And with baseball season now here, commentary about the first woman to play pro ball in the old Negro League. Looking back on her playing days, Tony Stone knew she had been part of a publicity stunt to bring fans through the gates. But she also realized, when life hands you one imperfect chance to live your dream, you take it. All that and more just ahead on NEPR News Now. But first, the remains of an army medic missing in action and declared dead during the Korean War have finally returned home to western Massachusetts. New England Public Radio's Kari Njiri reports. Hundreds of people, from schoolchildren to seniors, lined a procession waving American flags as a motorcade escorting the remains of Corporal Jules Hardeman Jr. arrived in Holyoke after nearly seven decades. Among the bystanders was Debbie Gazda and her 81-year-old mother. Gazda, whose husband also served in Korea, says she had to come out to welcome home one of Holyoke's own. I hear that he doesn't have much family left, so we're here to just, you know, honor him. You know, it's a good thing to do. It shows the family that, yes, there are still people that care about him, even though it's, it took them that long to bring him back home. Hartman joined the Army after graduating from Holyoke High School. A medic attached to the 31st Regimental Combat Team, Hartman was 19 years old when he was reported missing in December 1950 during fierce fighting against Chinese forces at the Chosen Reservoir, or Chanjin in Korean. Remains recovered in 1954 and buried the following year in Hawaii were re-examined last year and determined to be those of Hartman. Francisco Urania, Secretary of the Massachusetts Department of Veteran Services, says 198 Korean War and 38 Vietnam-era veterans from the state remain unaccounted for. But he says DNA has greatly advanced the work of finally identifying missing service members. In Hawaii, there is a laboratory that every month processes one or two remains, uh, possibly identifying them and repatriating them to their hometown to have the sense of homecoming that Jules Hardeman had here in Holyoke. That sense of homecoming couldn't come soon enough for Hardeman's cousin, Robert Wallahan, who says he never gave up hope. He later became a military medic like his cousin. Growing up, Wellahan lived across the hall from Hartman in a third-floor apartment and was just nine when he last saw him. We were really close. And the day he left, I remember he called me over. They banged on a wall, and I come over, and he was leaving. And he said, Bobby, i got to go now. And I said, okay, you're going back to the Army? He said, yep. I said, will you just come back safe to me? He gave me a hug and a kiss, and out the door he went. Never saw him again. Today. What does it mean to have him back home? Oh, it's, it's, I can't, I, I have no words for it. And if I did, I wouldn't be able to say him. So, it feels a big gap. 
Yep. Brings a lot of closure. In accordance with his family's wishes, Hardiman will be laid to rest with full military honors at St. Jerome Cemetery, where his mother, father, and sister are buried, less than half a mile away from the home where he grew up. For New England Public Radio, I'm Kari Njiri. Although the Republicans pulled their health care bill, they are reportedly preparing for another push to repeal Obamacare. And since the Congressional Budget Office predicted the recent GOP plan would take health insurance away from up to 24 million people, many of the newly insured are concerned. That includes one Western Massachusetts resident who was a high-profile skeptic of health reform. New England Public Radio's Karen Brown reports. About eight years ago, Gary Cloutier was poised to become the national face of blue-collar resistance to Obamacare. Some called him the Joe the Plumber of health reform. It all started when I interviewed him for a story on Massachusetts health reform, which was a model for the federal law. At the time, Cloutier, who owns an auto body shop in Westfield, Massachusetts, was angry he didn't qualify for the state's subsidized care. He was also against the requirement that everyone get insurance. Here's what he told me in 2009. You're forcing something down my throat, and then you're penalizing me because I can't afford it. Cloutier's comment on NPR reached the ears of a producer at ABC who invited him to a town hall-style meeting with President Barack Obama. Tonight, from the White House, a special edition of Prime Time. Cloutier keeps a DVD of that national TV appearance on his desk and recently played it for me, starting with Diane Sawyer's introduction. Gary Cloutier, who is a body shop owner. Yeah, body shop owner from Westfield, Massachusetts, Clutes Auto Body. Got to give myself a plug. There you go. Cloutier, a registered independent, told the president he was worried about the Obamacare penalty for not being insured. What are you going to do for people like me so that we don't fall through the cracks? Obama went on to assure Cloutier that the health exchanges would eventually bring down the cost so small business owners like him could afford insurance. For you to be part of this exchange, this marketplace, along with millions of others, suddenly you've got a little bit of market clout. That was about the end of Cloutier's 15 minutes of fame. Shortly after his TV appearance, the pop star Michael Jackson died and the news cycle was over. Cloutier went back home to figure out how to get health insurance. Obamacare passed and Massachusetts expanded its subsidized health plans. You know, in the end, I have insurance now. I have health insurance now. It took me a while to get it. He had to apply three times. But today, Cloutier is a devoted convert to health reform, both Massachusetts version and Obamacare. He pays a comfortable $150 a month, thanks to subsidies from the Massachusetts Health Connector. He says he uses his Tufts insurance card regularly. I was able to get a physical for the first time in I don't know how long. I uh, was able to get a colonoscopy. He also went to a sleep clinic where he was prescribed a breathing machine for sleep apnea, which explained why he was always so tired. Who knows what could have happened? I could have fallen asleep and had an accident, killed someone, killed myself. You know, I mean, maybe I'm being a little dramatic here, but that possibility is there, and I didn't know I had it until I was diagnosed with it. You know, and that was all because I have health insurance now. He knows the current system is not perfect. In the last year, some major insurers have pulled out of the federal health exchanges. And states, including Massachusetts and Connecticut, have warned that some premiums are going up. But Cloutier says it's a lot better than it used to be. So here I'm thinking, great, I got insurance. And now the Republicans come into office. And now you want to yank the rug right out from underneath me? Even though the Republican health care bill was pulled last week... Cloutier is worried they'll try something else. But do the wires go through the seat? Uh, they run down. 
He says he is still financially strapped, making less than $40,000 a year. And you can see the pressure he's under to keep costs low, like when he tells one of his employees to go faster on the jobs. Where's your uh, electric uh, ration? Time is money. Cloutier knows that in some ways he represents a demographic Trump might assume would be on his side. Yeah, I'm the the blue-collar worker. I'm fed up with the government, you know, doing what they do and how they don't really care about us. But I'm not a moron either. On the ballot last November, he wrote in Bernie Sanders rather than vote for Trump or Clinton. But next election, after watching White House attempts to roll back health reform, he's willing to vote strategically to make sure Trump doesn't win again. For New England Public Radio, I'm Karen Brown. It's not a huge jump from that story about health insurance to this next one about a health concern. General Electric and the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency are battling over the last stretch of the PCB cleanup of the Housatonic River in Massachusetts from Pittsfield through Great Barrington. GE is appealing the government's cleanup plan. One big issue is where to put the toxic PCBs that are dug up from the river. New England Public Radio's Nancy Cohen reports. Fisherman Chris Windrum leads the way to the river, past a sign warning people not to eat the fish because of PCBs. All right, we're in it. Standing in the Housatonic. Although the river contains a toxin, the water sparkles in the bright sun. And there's fish. If Windrum was going for trout today, he'd use a lure that mimics an insect that he spots under the water. Here's a, probably a stonefly nymph right here. At any time the insects are active like this, the fish may be active too. The relationship between fish and insects provides a lesson on how PCBs climb up the food chain. The toxin binds to sediment on the river bottom. Insects ingest the PCBs, then fish eat the bugs, birds, mink, and sometimes people eat the fish. The EPA says PCBs can cause cancer. When the agency banned them in 1979, a GE plant upstream of here in Pittsfield had already released them into the river. GE is on the hook for the cleanup and wants to dump the sediment in three toxic waste disposal sites close to the river, which the company says would be safe and cost-effective. Chris Windrum doesn't buy it. At least one proposed disposal site borders the river's edge. I think it's sort of disingenuous on the part of GE to pull it out of the river and put it a couple hundred yards away. The EPA has a different plan. The agency wants GE to dig up 990,000 cubic yards of river sediment containing PCBs and ship it to federally approved disposal sites, none of which are in New England. But Danny Reibel, an environmental engineer from Texas Tech University who researches the management of contaminated sediments, says PCBs can't can be safely disposed of next to a river, in part because unlike some other toxins, they bind to organic matter and are less likely to move. A properly designed landfill could manage these materials indefinitely. Rival explains a secure disposal site would be monitored and lined and covered with clay and plastic. It would basically be a uh, hole in the ground with these liners to control any movement of groundwater in or out. And then it would be covered with also low permeability materials so that you wouldn't have the problem of rain infiltration. The basic effort is to try to control water. 
That's because if water flows, it can carry contaminants with it. The EPA has argued there are problems with the proposed sites, such as their proximity to the Housatonic watershed and drinking water supplies. The permeability of the soil is another issue, meaning if multiple liners fail, PCBs might leak into the groundwater. Both the EPA and GE declined to be interviewed for this story. One of GE's proposed sites is in a wooded area in the village of Housatonic, where locals hike. Luna, stop. Stop. Look, look, look. Amy Haggerty and her dog, Luna, lead the way through a forest high above the Housatonic River. Haggerty says when her kids were young, they canoed here once. We could see the fish, and it was fun, and of course nobody dared touch the water. We get to a spot where the water below spreads wide. Known as Rising Pond, it's upstream from a dam. The EPA calls for digging up 71,000 cubic yards of PCB sediment here. Haggerty explains where GE wants to put it. Right here, we are standing on it. All of this. This entire parcel of land is the proposed site, which will affect from here north, south, east, and west, in the air, in the earth, in the water. GE disputes that and says compared to shipping the waste elsewhere, local disposal would save about a quarter of a billion dollars. But Haggerty says property values in our close-knit community would plummet, and businesses would close if the PCBs were stored here. GE doesn't want to spend the money to ship these toxins across the country to Texas, where they can be treated Do not put it in our backyard. You want to save money? Save it someplace else. Do the right thing. About a half mile from the proposed disposal site, Haggerty owns a cafe. It's a cozy place selling coffee, eggs, even peanut butter and kimchi sandwiches. Robbie Byer stops by to pick up a decaf latte on the way to his recording studio. He wants GE to figure out how to treat the PCBs and make them harmless and not dump them anywhere. It's stupid to ship the stuff to Texas so then some other community has to deal with the garbage. I don't know what the solution is, but obviously I don't want it here. Um, I think it's unfair that they polluted this whole river and this whole community for so long and are now also want to dump it here. That, also, that, that really doesn't sound fair. One of the EPA's arguments against local disposal is that fierce opposition will jeopardize the cleanup altogether, but GE argues that community acceptance of the disposal sites is not one of the criteria in the legal cleanup agreement. Danny Reibel, the environmental engineer from Texas Tech, says he can't comment on the viability of GE's proposed sites, but he believes a good landfill design can address risks, even floods. And he says local disposal would avoid possible shipping accidents if the PCBs were moved out of state. I believe that it can be just as good to dispose of it locally than send it elsewhere. I think it provides uh, potentially a, a just as safe a solution. People in the Berkshires already have experience with PCB dumps. GE and the EPA previously cleaned up two miles of the Housatonic in Pittsfield. The company shipped some of the sediment to facilities in New York, Michigan, and Texas. But most of it ended up at the edge of a neighborhood right next to an elementary school. City Councilor Kevin Morandi lives there near two PCB dumps known as Building 71 and Hill 78.
you know, people have certainly died in the area of cancer, but can they link it to that? No, not really. When Morandi first ran for office in 2008, Hill 78 was growing higher and higher as the cleanup in Pittsfield progressed. Covered with a bright blue tarp, it was a visible reminder to residents of potential risks. They were really concerned, of course, with with cancer and, and, you know, things that have been put out there about PCBs and that type of thing. So, and their children going to the to the school. By 2009, the two sites were filled. People don't talk about them much today. Soil and grass now blanket Hill 78, and it kind of fades into the landscape. Even still, Morandi has a message for Berkshire communities downstream. Don't allow it. Don't do what Pittsfield did and, and allow that uh, to be put there. Where to put the toxic waste will be hammered out in front of EPA judges in early June. If GE loses its appeal, the company can take the case to federal court. Some Berkshire residents say if GE is allowed to dispose of PCBs locally, they'd rather leave them in the Housatonic River. For New England Public Radio, I'm Nancy Cohen. Baseball season is back. Just a few hours before I'm taping this, the Red Sox finished off the Pittsburgh Pirates 5-3. to Not a bad start to the season for Sox fans. That brings me to commentator Martha Ackman, who says one of baseball's greatest fans was a player you've probably never heard of. Every spring, when the days grew warmer, Tony Stone would go nuts. It was like a drug, Tony said. When the bats started popping, I'd go crazy. By the way, that's Tony with an I. That's right, a woman. Tony Stone was baseball's female, Jackie Robinson. She was the first woman to play professional baseball in the old Negro League of the 1950s. When a young Henry Aaron moved from the Indianapolis Clowns to the majors, Stone replaced him. She played against Willie Mays, Satchel Paige, Buck O'Neill, and at one point in the 1953 season, batted fourth in the league behind Ernie Banks. She got her start in a curious way. After Robinson integrated baseball, the Negro Leagues lost its fan base, and club owners looked for ways to increase attendance. That's when the clowns signed Stone, a sensation playing semi-pro ball. Tony did not disappoint, and fans turned out. She was scrappy, quick on the base paths, and a fierce second baseman. Once, when the clown's third baseman grabbed a hot line drive, he fired to Stone for the double play. The ball tore through the webbing of her glove and knocked her out cold. After several minutes on the ground, with coaches pouring water on her face, Stone shook daylight back into her head. Let's play, she said as she popped up and wove her glove back together. Stone played one season for the clowns before being traded to the legendary Kansas City Monarchs. There, she sat on the bench most of the time with a coach who begrudged her and players who often sabotaged her play. It was hell, Tony said. By 1955, the Negro League had run out of steam, and Tony Stone returned home to Oakland. Not playing baseball hurt so bad, she said, I damn near had a heart attack. She died in 1996. Looking back on her playing days, Tony Stone knew she had been part of a publicity stunt to bring fans through the gates. But she also realized, when life hands you one imperfect chance to live your dream, you take it. She always had the same answer when reporters asked what she liked best about baseball. Her eyes would gleam, her voice grew lively. Throwing a ball around in infield practice, Tony would say, it's beautiful if it's played right. Martha Ackman is the author of 
Curveball, the remarkable story of Tony Stone, first woman to play professional baseball in the Negro League. Ackman lives in Leverett, Massachusetts, and teaches at Mount Holyoke College. Thanks for listening to NEPR News Now, stories you really shouldn't miss. This show is produced by listener-funded New England Public Radio. Please give us a rating on iTunes, and while you're there, take a look at the other podcasts from NEPR. You can support the podcast and all the news and music NEPR delivers to your car, your home, and your phone by going to NEPR.net. It's a newly redesigned website. Check it out, and, you know, while you're there, maybe click the bright orange Donate button at the top of the page. Again, thanks for listening. Until next time. Thank you.